we will be in Acts 15. Um, who's ever heard of the phrase, not one iota? Who knows where that came from? Just shout it out if you know. What did you say? Oh, okay. Not one iota from a dad. It goes back a little bit before that. Uh, 325 AD, the very first council that was universally called after Christianity was legalized in Rome. And it was over this debate about who Jesus is. And there was a group, they were called the semi-Arianists. And they said, Jesus has to be half God and half man. Just like all the demigods of the myths of both the Romans and the Greeks and the pagans, most pagan religions have some story of the gods coming down and having relations with women and producing some semi-God race. So they said, look, if Jesus is half God, half man, we'll have an instant in with all these pagan religions. Let's do that. Let's make him half God, half man. So that was a semi-Arianist point. On the other side was this guy named Athanasius. If you don't know his name, he's very famous for this conversation. This it was the first council of Nicaea. And so they go there, they have this massive debate and they come up with this word. It was homoousis. And that word meant of the same substance, that Jesus and the father are the same substance. They're one and the same. And there was this big debate over that. Ah. And so the semi-Arianist said this, give us an eye, give us an iota. Because if you put an eye into homoousis, it makes it not the same substance, but similar substance. And so that council replied by saying, no, we will not give you one iota. That's where it comes from, which is the, it's the smallest Greek letter. No, we're not gonna give that to you. And it preserved what Christianity truly is. That Jesus, great is this mystery, the Bible says, that God would be manifest in the flesh. That Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Great mystery that that is, the incarnation. So that was a very, very famous church council. There's a more famous one today and it's in Acts chapter 15. This is the very first church council. And they're trying to answer this question. What do you need to do to be saved? What's required for salvation? That's the debate on the table in Acts 15. And I love the fact that they have this debate. One of the tragedies of the Reformation, there's very few, but one of the tragedies is no longer, well, actually went back to the great schism with the Eastern and Catholic church, but, but the Reformation did it more, is there's this now division in churches. So no longer can you have an all church group come together and decide theological things. There's no such thing. And then non-denominational stuff, which has come about in the last 40 years, is even more different. Like, where do we as a church go to say, hey, we wanna solve this doctrinal issue? Well, there's not really somewhere. That's one of the tragedies. I love the fact in Acts 15, they get the whole church together and they make this decision. So it's brilliant. Let's look at it. <clears throat> but some men came down from Judea and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, 
they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party at the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Big issue here, circumcision. So to get us prepared for us, we're gonna watch a five minute video on circumcision. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Wouldn't that be brutal? So the issue if you read Galatians, is, it's where these guys went in verse one. They went up to Galatia and there was this young man named Titus and Titus was on fire for the Lord. And Paul refused to allow them to circumcise him, which he was very happy about. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate that, right? So we looked at this a bit on Sunday, the first 10 verses here, a couple Sundays ago, but let me just kind of clean up some stuff. Number one, look at verse one. You have missionaries going to talk to believers. Isn't that tragedy? They're going out from Jerusalem, not to save Gentiles or unbelievers or go push the gospel out. They're going out from Jerusalem because they want to make people like them. They want to make them more Jewish. That's their goal. Do we still do that today? I think so, right? The Baptists want to make people more Baptist-like. The Presbyterian wants to make people more Presbyterian-like. The Lutherans, more Lutheran-like. The Calvary Chapel, more Calvary Chapel-like. The Pentecostals, more Pentecostal. The Charismatics, more Charismatic, right? We all do that. And you can almost tell who somebody is, like what tribe they belong by the words they use all the time. Have you noticed that? God is sovereign, Trust the sovereignty of God. I love God's sovereignty. Who's always talking about God's sovereignty? Calvinists, Presbyterians. It's God is sovereign. I love that. So the moment I'm talking with somebody that talks about God's sovereignty, I know, okay, this is their camp. And they're gonna try to convert me now to their camp. All right. And then you hear people, free will, man, you gotta have, everyone has free will. That's the Arminius camp, right? You, got it. you made your decision, you made your bed, you're gonna lay in it. The people are talking about, I just need to be in God's presence. I need to feel his touch. I need to, they pray for like four hours straight, repeating the same things, you know, okay. Pentecostal, charismatic, okay. And everyone is always, it seems to me, spending maybe too much time trying to convert people to their camp instead of go out and preach the good news to the lost. We had this time at Edgewater, it was about six years ago, where I was having like four Sundays in a row. These people would ask me, why don't we do church on Saturday? I'm thinking, well, that's an interesting question. Okay, and I'd work through that, Romans 14, Colossians chapter two, and just try to work through that with them. And there was no problem. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, And then next Sunday, same thing. I'm like, what in the world? The third Sunday, I'm thinking something's going on here. The fourth Sunday I came in and there was this young man in here and he had this stack of books. And I'm like, what's that? So I go, I walk up to him. I said, hey, what's up? He's like, oh, I've been talking to some people here and uh, I was gonna hand them some books today. I said, well, what books are you handing out? And it was Ellen G. White. She's the founder of Seventh-day Adventist. It was Ellen G. White's book, The Great Controversy. And so I said, buddy, this isn't the place for that. You can't do that here or we're gonna have a great controversy. You and me, there's gonna be another great controversy. And if you want to talk to people about that, there are other places to do that. But to come in to here, it was just fascinating to me. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. I think there's way too much energy spent trying to convert the converted instead of loving on people that are lost and really needed. I learned this maybe the best when I was in Vanuatu. I was there for a year. We had very good friends who were Baptists, just straight-laced Baptist. And then they were called the Paneros. And then on the other side, there was Ray Spari and his family who were AOG charismatic Pentecostals. And we would do outreaches together with, with the straight Baptists and your Pentecostal AOG. And then we're Applegators, which, you know, we're like mutants. Nobody knows what we are. 
We kind of just fit anything. We're like, hey, that's all good. Let's go. Let's go save people. And we go out and we'd be ministering. And when we ministered together, Baptist, AOG, Applegators, we never had an issue because our focus was on Jesus and the gospel and seeing people saved. So we won't worry about these, these second tier issues. So here you have people being sent out instead of to the lost to save people to make them into their tribe. Don't do that. It's good to have discussions and to be sharpened and ask great questions, but not at the expense of knowing where to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, teaching them all the commands that Jesus has taught us to, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's our number one commission. Everything else bows to that. So these guys are doing that. Secondly, I love this. The church sent Paul and Barnabas. And then verse four, the church received Paul and Barnabas. We'll see the church mentioned over and over and over in this text. The church is the driving thing that unites this discussion and pushes it forward and keeps things from becoming loose cannons and weirdness. And really that's the way it works. If you know church history, there's a great book, Bruce Shelley's uh, Church History in Plain Language, brilliant. What drives the church for the first thousand years is this unity. We'll talk about things, we'll discuss them, we'll reason them through, and then we'll make decisions on them. It's brilliant and beautiful. And I think we need more of that. Because now I'll talk to other pastors in our community and we'll have met with the same person. Because now what happens is people pastor shop. They want an answer, they don't know what it is. And they'll go around to the 50 churches in Grants Pass until they find a pastor that agrees with them. The problem with that is, number one, God probably doesn't agree with that. You probably should listen to the first person that you talk to and really think it through. And Hebrews 13, 17 says this, that you're actually supposed to submit yourself to a group of people that have authority over you. And if we're not submitted to that, I'm submitted to the elders of Edgewater. There have been many decisions that I thought were absolutely brilliant and right and the total thing God wanted to do that the elders have said, no, we're not doing that. And I enjoy that. I'm glad to be in a group of people that help me and walk by me. And I know this, they have Edgewater and the kingdom at their best, that, that that's what they want the most. And so everything goes into that jar. So the Bible says we're to submit to a group of people like that. And when that happens, you're actually able to grow. Anything else you're running from what God wants. We're all Jonah's then. We're all running because we don't like what God told us there. So we run to Tarsus or we run to a ship and we escape from what God wants us to do. I love, you see the church and submission to it. Number three, verse five. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Can a believer be a Pharisee? Right, we're on the other side of this now. We're, we're, we're way down the road. So our struggle isn't this anymore. Our struggle is the other way. Can a legalistic Pharisee actually be a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, it sure seems like it in verse five, right? Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. If somebody wants to keep the law, 613 do's and don'ts, they wanna eat kosher food, they wanna to go to church on Saturday, they wanna keep the feast days, they wanna learn Hebrew, they wanna wear clothes that are only made of one kind of fiber. If they wanna do all that, praise God, man. You can totally do that. And you're saved and Jesus loves you. 100% go for it. The problem comes when you tell other people they have to do that or they're not saved. That's the problem. But if somebody feels compelled in their heart to follow all the Old Testament rules and regulations, man, go for it. Here's what I think you'll find though, if you want to, look at what Peter says, verse six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them having, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. They discuss. Peter stands up and says, remember, I was the guy, Acts chapter 10, that took the gospel to Cornelius and I saw what happened and God's spirit filled them and empowered them and saved them. So why are we trying to reverse that? And we know, verse 10, he says, that we never kept all the law and neither did our fathers. The thing with the law is this, you can't keep it. It's like a loan. Who gets a loan? The person that can prove they actually don't need the loan. Do you have assets? Do you have good credit? Do you have all this? Okay, we'll give you a loan then, right? A loan goes to the person that can prove they actually don't need the loan, <laughs> right? So here's what the law does. The law is like that. The law comes and shows you, no, you have no assets. Nope, you have nothing. You are a debtor. You cannot do it. No loan for you. That's what the law comes and says. It shows that you can't do it. There was this great book written like four years ago by A.J. Jacobs. It's called Living Biblically for One Year. Who's heard of that book? It's so good. He, he, he just, for one full year, he went through the Bible tried to find every single law that was in the Bible. And he said, for one year, I'm gonna do all these things. And uh, he has these interviews, they're awesome. Like he wore clothing that was 100% cotton because the Bible says you cannot wear clothing of mixed fibers. So that, he ate a cricket once because he thought that one of the commands was you have to eat cricket. So he ate a cricket. His wife would not kiss him after that. Grew out a big beard. He met this guy in the park. Who, he saw him dressed like he was dressed. He's like, hmm, that's interesting. Why are you dressed like that? He told him what he was doing. He, was, he said, guess what? I'm committing adultery. And the Bible says you have to stone adulterers. So A.J. Jacobs was like, picked up a little pebble. and was like, tink. <laughs> like he went that far. <laughs> he really tried to keep the law. <laughs> so in this interview, I saw it was really funny. The interviewer is like talking to him. He says, the interviewer said, what's the biggest surprise? He said, my biggest surprise was the rude awakening I had about how often I sinned. Like every day I was sinning. I was gossiping, lying. I was constantly coveting. Like how in the world do you not covet? Everywhere I looked, I'm like, oh, that looks, you're coveting. And then, then the classic line was this. He said, I have to admit that during this interview, I probably sinned as well. <laughs> it was so good. He said, it's impossible. Exactly. What Peter says right here, it's impossible. You can't do it. I said a couple of weeks ago, the law is like a level that you put up against a wall and it tells you it's out of balance. It's not straight up and down. You don't use the level then to correct the wall. You'll break the level. You have to get a different tool to level it. Or I thought about this one yesterday. Um, if you've been up to the property, you've seen the Great Wall of Edgewater, right? It's like, you can see it from space now. I'm like, wow, is that too tall? Because that seems like too tall. No, that's all right. That's really tall. So uh, they had scaffolding in there, right? To build this cinder block wall. And they, the first thing they did was they erected all this scaffolding. I watched them do it. Took them like two days, just this massive 35 feet tall scaffolding. And then they started building their wall. They, built their wall. they finished the wall. On Tuesday, they dismantled the scaffolding and they took it away. I thought, that's the law. The law was this scaffolding. It's Genesis or Genesis. It's Galatians 3.24. It was a scaffolding that was used for a period of time to protect and to hold and to secure until the real deal came, which is Jesus. And once the real deal came, you don't need the scaffolding anymore. Was the scaffolding necessary? Totally. You couldn't get the real deal without the scaffolding. But once the real deal comes, you don't leave the scaffolding in the house. You take it down. You don't need it anymore. And that's what Peter is saying right here. You don't need it anymore. We couldn't do it. So we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And grace is so hard 
for people to actually accept. Do you know that? I think it's why Jesus said, if you wanna come to me, you need to come as a little child. Have you ever given something to a child and had the child say to you, oh, you shouldn't have. No, 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 that's too nice. That's too big. Well, I've got to pay you for that. Ever had a child say that? No, they're like, yeah, new quad. Awesome, thank you. And they write off. That's how we're supposed to be with God's grace. Wow, God, awesome. Let's write off. You have to come as a child that we are saved by grace. So Peter now puts this out there. He's one of the big dudes. And there's a big, I could just imagine if I was in that place, the, 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 tension that would be, whoa, whoa, what are we going to do? So here's what happens. Verse 12. And the whole assembly fell silent. Before that, verse seven tells us there had been much debate. If you've ever hung around Jewish people, I was in Israel two years ago, they know how to debate. Like they have great discussions, great talks, great. They know how to, I can just imagine just a, the whole room is alive. And then all of a sudden Peter speaks and it's like, oh. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with the words of the prophet, they agree just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For, from, for the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues." They fall silent and it says they listened to Barnabas and Paul. There are two ways you can listen. You can listen to learn or you can listen to argue. Sometimes we listen to argue where we say, well, I'm gonna play the devil's advocate. Just think about whose team you're on when you're saying that. Maybe you don't want to be the devil's advocate. I am trying, the older I get, to do more listening to learn than rather picking out someone's inconsistency, even though I missed the heart of the issue, their inconsistency so I can argue with them. I want to listen more to learn. And that's what they do right here. They're like, okay, let's actually listen to what they're saying. So James says, okay. Paul and Barnabas have, has told us what they've seen God do with Gentiles. Peter has told us what he saw God do with the Gentiles. And then he goes to the Bible and he quotes from Amos chapter nine, a perfect quotation of what God does with Gentiles. Is that amazing? He does that without commentaries. He does that without probably the scroll of Amos because he probably didn't own it. He does it without Google. He quotes a random passage from a minor prophet from heart. Does anyone in here know one verse from the book of Amos? I know one just because Martin Luther King preached it. You know, let justice roll down like a river from Amos 5. This is amazing to me. These guys are so steeped in scripture. It just oozes out of them. He's able to pull out of his mind a random passage from the book of Amos, a minor prophet that applies perfectly. Look at God's always one of the Gentiles in and this is how he's going to do it. Brilliant. And then he says this, four things. Keep away from the pollution of idols, sexual immorality, food that's strangled and blood. Now, why is he doing this? What he's asking for is this. 
He's asking that the Gentiles live a lifestyle that is loving and holy. That's what he's asking for. Here's what I mean. First, holiness. When he, he doesn't say stay away from idols. He, stays, he says, stay away from the things polluted by idols. This is a massive, it could be a massive. I won't make it massive. I'll make it very small. But it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 32, where the Gentile nations were given over to certain little G gods, the little Elohims, Deuteronomy 13, 18, 32, 18. So every city would have a temple and that temple would have an idol and the entire city would be centered around that temple in every festival, every business meeting, every celebration, everything centered around that idol, that temple. It was the very center of social life for a city. It touched everything. So if you went there to do business, before you did business, guess what you'd have to do? Make a sacrifice to the idol. Everything ran through that God. That we want that God's approval of us. We want to get him in our debt, essentially. So he helps us in our celebration, helps us have kids, whatever it is. So it, it, it affected everything. So what James is saying is, we want you to stay away from that. We want you to pull out of that. Now, why would he say that? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the idol actually has something, a power behind it, a demonic spiritual force behind it. So James is saying, stay away from that. Stay away from those things. There's one time in my life where I went into a, uh, it was a shrine in India that had a little idol in the center of it. And I'd been in a bunch of temples and been all over the place and never had a problem. But I walked into this one little, it was a very small one on the side of the road. And I walked in there and there was something I can't explain it to this day, but I felt it. It was like oppressive on my spirit. And it was like, there was a voice in me saying, get out of here, get out of here now. And I just turned around and left. I, to, the, to this day, I'm pretty sure there was a force in there that was like, our, our spirits were at war in a way that you can only sense it, but I could feel it. I can still, I can still remember the hairs on my neck standing up in that moment, like, get out. So it's like that. James is saying, stay away from that. Be holy. Don't go there. And then sexual immorality. If you know history, culture's headed one of two ways when it comes to sex. Either sex is dirty. And so what they would do is they build these taboos around sex because they kind of thought, thought of it as dirty. Or the other way is sex is like a steak. It's just a appetite that you have like hunger. And no one's gonna say to somebody when they're hungry, hey, you can't eat. Well, sex is the same thing. It's just another appetite that you should go and be able to fulfill in any way that you want. Well, Rome by this time, the Roman Empire, had moved in the second century BC, very conservative, very conservative. But now in 50 AD or so, whoo, rampant immorality. So they said this, a free man, meaning this, you're not a slave. A free man can have sex with whomever and whenever he wants. Doesn't matter age, doesn't matter gender, does not matter. So a free man was allowed to just have full reign of whatever he wanted. And so that's the culture right now that Christianity is coming into. And so what James is saying is, that's not how we're gonna roll. That's not how we're gonna roll. And if you wanna read some great history on this, women who had been watching this happen for a long time. Their husbands just doing whatever they wanted. Temples being filled with prostitutes, male and female. Just every kind of gross, wicked thing happening. Women, when they heard Genesis 2 being taught, that it's one man, one woman, for one life, they, rich, powerful, educated women, started flocking into the church because they said, that's how we're designed. That's the right way. And they they made a move towards sexual purity out of complete rampant immorality because they knew, man, that is a lost thing. And there are books right now. I, still, I always recommend Laura Sessions' Unhooked, which looked into the college culture of that rampant immorality and what happened to these women in it. And it, was one of the, it made me cry. That book made me cry because of how it changed a woman. 
And, and, and there was a, a lady in there, she gives, she gives her testimony. She said this, I have bared my body so many times to men and turned off my emotions when I did it. I don't, you know, she was 38 years old. She goes, I don't know how to turn on my emotions anymore. And I'm afraid that I'll never be loved. It was so devastating to me. That's what happens. So here, James is saying, be holy. Stay away from idols. Stay away from the demonic. Stay away from it. And be careful about sex. Be careful. So the Bible says this about sex. It's a sacred gift. It's not dirty. It's not a free-for-all. The Bible comes down the middle. It says, it's this sacred, beautiful gift. And when it's used the way God wants you to use it, it's brilliant and beautiful. It unites two people. Science has proven it now. The Bible said it in Genesis 2. The two shall become one. But now we know that the act of intimacy actually unites two people together. Like there's oxytocin is released into your body and it's a, it's, a, it's a hormone that makes people feel very close to each other, makes them feel like one. And that happens through intimacy. So the Bible said it a long, long time ago that it's this sacred gift. And so there is this idea that, that maybe today we talk more about sex stuff. I'll give you... Uh, uh, a thing that you can research. Research the Puritans in the 1600s. So when you think about Puritans, do you think about messages on sex? No, they had a lot of them. So there's this guy, you can Google him. His name is Ed Morgan. He was a professor at Yale University. And he, his thing was like the 1600s, that was his, his, his whole thing. So he did all this research on Puritans and the sermons they preached. And he found like, whoa, these are racy sermons. I can't believe this. He wanted to publish them in the Yale Review in the 1950s. So Yale Review, probably a liberal leaning, you know, newspaper back in the 1950s. They refused to publish them because they were too racy for the Yale Review. And these were preached Puritan messages. It's amazing to me. We have records of a woman coming to the Puritan elders in a church and saying, my husband isn't doing what my husband should be doing with me. And the church elders disciplining that man, putting him in the square in stocks next to the horse, horse thief. Like, dude, what are you in for? Uh, well, my wife's not very happy with me right now. Oh, dude, you're gonna be here a long time, man. <laughs> I just stole a horse, I'm good. <laughs> And the Puritans were guys that were steeped in scripture and they realized this sacred gift has to be really taught on and preached about because when it is done right, it's beautiful and it brings people happiness. See, James is saying, listen, Gentiles, you've tried that whole game over there and you've known it doesn't do what you want to do. That's why you've come to Jesus. Holiness always brings happiness. Be holy, be holy. Be holy, stay away from the demonic and stay away from that sexual immorality. And then he then, then says as well, two things about eating. And this is what I'd say, it's loving. Have a holy, loving lifestyle. Stay away from strangled food and blood. Have you ever been freaked out by food? One time, I was in Taiwan, went to this Restaurant, very nice restaurant. It looked like an aquarium when you walked in there because everything is alive. So I walked over this big, there was a massive saltwater tank and there was this, it looked like a shrimp that was that big. And I'm like, whoa, that is so cool. Well, once you look at something, the, my guests, my, the, my hosts were like, oh, he wants to eat that. So guess what came out? This massive giant shrimp on a big piece of ice and then it was, its back was opened all up and it was all filleted up on the back so that you could grab it with your, your um, chopsticks. That's what I was looking for. And, and eat it. The only problem was this. He was still alive. So you're grabbing part of him and he's got his little antenna and he's feeling you like, wait, hold on. You're like, ah, uh. yeah. And I remember just like, oh, this is so cruel. I don't like this. I know why they do it. They do it to show, hey, we didn't go in the back get an old frozen one and thaw it out and do, this is, this, this is the one that was in the cage. But I was just like, oh, that's the only time I've ever been like, and I eat all kinds of stuff. I'm very, 
I'll, I'll try anything once. But that was just, I just felt like, mm, I don't wanna do that again. That's what James is saying. Listen, Gentiles, if we're gonna have Jew and Gentile sitting at the same table, enjoying table fellowship, having great conversations, eating food together, loving each other, enjoying that, if we're gonna do that, if you bring strangled food and cups of blood to the table, we're just, we, we can't do it. We know it's your freedom to do that. And we realize that you're liberal and, and it's okay for you to do that. But for us, you bring it to the table and it freaks us out. And so the most loving thing you can do for us is when we eat together, don't bring the cups of blood. Please don't. Didn't Jack LaLanne used to drink like a cup of ox blood? Does anybody know that? Uh, anyways, random thought. And so he's just asking, consider the people you're gonna eat with. Consider them. And reign in your liberty in Christ because you love us and don't wanna offend us. It might be that maybe the closest thing we have today is people drinking wine. So there are certain parts of Christianity that have very strong opinions that you should never drink alcohol. And I don't personally find them in the back. I, I don't drink personally because I have a heredity thing in my background. My dad's an alcoholic. My grandpa's an alcoholic. My grandma's an alcoholic on that side. My aunt's an alcoholic on this side. There's just a lot of that in my brother, alcoholic. He's dead now. My sister's an alcoholic. My little brother, drug addict. I just think, you know what? I don't need any more kind of data points to know maybe that's a problem in my family. So I just personally know, no, no thanks, not for me. For me and my house, no way. But I'm never gonna put that on somebody else. That's my own decision. So some people have very, very strong feelings on no alcohol, no, Christians should never drink alcohol. I don't think you can find it that way. Romans 14, read it thoroughly. Colossians chapter two, I think it gives you that, that freedom. And so a, a while back I had this girl and her husband say, hey, we're really open about this and we're okay with a glass of wine with our pasta and we're not getting drunk, but like our family and some friends have a problem with it. What should we do? So I said, type out, John chapter two, where Jesus turns water into wine. Tape it to a really nice glass or bottle of wine and give it to your family. And she's like, really? I said, no, <laughs> never. <laughs> you can never do that. She's like, oh man. I said, when you have them over dinner, put the wine away. It's that simple, right? Paul says this, if eating meat stumbles somebody, I'll never meet, eat meat again. To me, the church becomes beautiful and unified when strong believers that can enjoy things and aren't caught up in trips say, I love you so much that I'll watch myself around you so I'm not to stumble you, which is Romans 15. Those that are strong in the faith. Be looking out for those that, that are caught up in these kind of little things. Don't do it around them. Protect them from that because it's loving and it's kind and it brings unity to the body of Christ. So what James is saying is super simple. Be holy and be loving because when you are, church works brilliantly. So that's what he says. So here's what they do. I'll be fast now. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. And it says the whole church that always, I'm like, it's a 10,000 person church probably in Jerusalem. Did they think the whole church together at this point? I think so. Like there's something to congregational rule that you see right here. I'm still trying to mull it over what that means in my mind. To choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Their brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your mind, although we gave them no instructions, we did not authorize these guys to come to you. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, fare well. So the church gets together. They pick out two extra guys from the church that bring the message so everyone knows, hey, these guys didn't forge this, me- this letter on their own. Here's two representatives of our church and you guys as well. And then they say this, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. If you know the history of, of the churches in Galatia, there's always a little bit of like, Paul, are you really, really an apostle? Paul, do you have the authority? Paul, what gives you the right? There's always that question of Paul. So right here, they stamp on Paul, their authority. He's beloved. You know how powerful the stamp is? Remember Oprah Winfrey and her book club? Did you know when Oprah Winfrey would pick a book for her book club, it would give more sales than if that book won the Nobel Prize in literature. When I read that, I could not believe that. How powerful is Oprah's opinion? My goodness. Nobel, prize in literature, eh, who cares? I wanna be on Oprah's book club. (laughs) It's like amazing. It's kind of that kind of stamp. Like now Barnabas and Paul have the stamp of the church. These guys are beloved, beloved. And it says, one thing will be done with this section. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How did they know the Holy Spirit was into this? Did he show up and like fist bump? Hey, do you, you guys did so good. Man, the unity came too. I love the theology. You guys, awesome. I'm heading back to heaven. I don't know how it happened, but I sure would like to have more of that here. Man, you see stuff like that and it's like, yeah. Maybe it's the unity. You know, it says we're of one accord. We agreed. Maybe that's what, how they knew because you know, God's spirit is always unifying people. I don't know but I know it intrigues me. So here they go. They send the letter, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I bet they did. The men were like, yeah, (laughs) woohoo. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to who, they, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The church all gets together. And the church of Galatia is a bunch of different cities. I wondered what today would actually unify and gather the church, big C church together. What would everybody say, man, we got to come together for that. I don't know of anything anymore. It's kind of sad. Hmm. All the men though, very happy. They get back to verse 35, doing what they had done before. This is like a, a, a speed bump. They, they go through it well, and then they get back to teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take him with them because he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. If you remember, John Mark, back in chapter 14, abandoned the mission and went home. So now they're setting up missionary journey number two and John Mark gets fired by the apostle Paul. For his life, he's got on his resume, 
I was fired by the Apostle Paul. Yeah, it was a bummer. <laughs> so you get these two guys, very big personalities, very different personalities. And I think what you see here is two sides of the same coin. Paul is, his number one concern is the ministry. The ministry, the ministry, the ministry. And John Mark might be a liability for the ministry. So I can't take him. Barnabas cares about the minister. No, what ministry can do for him? No, no, right? Paul is highly concerned with being efficient and effective. Barnabas is an encourager and he wants to give a second chance. Let's give him a second chance. Paul's like, I've forgiven him, but man, he's got to earn back his trust. And Barnabas is like, how else will he earn back trust? Unless you give him an opportunity. And they're both right. And God here gets two missionary journeys from these two guys in the end. Like it's okay to disagree with people, but you need to do it, you need to do it in a way that is not disagreeable. Like you need to be able to talk with people and not get so flustered and angry at them that you make them hate you. There should be a way to just talk. And, okay, okay, no problem. And I love this. We know the end of what happens with John Mark. So Paul in Colossians 4.10 says this, hey, church at Colossae, if John Mark shows up, maybe they knew about this story. If John Mark shows up, receive him. Don't play games with him. Don't kick him out, receive him. Then a little while later in his letter in Philemon, he says this, he says, John Mark, a fellow laborer greets you. Now he's with Paul. And then in 2 Timothy, he actually asks for John Mark to be sent because he says, he's valuable to me and to the ministry. It comes full circle. I love it. I love that John Mark didn't give up. I love that Barnabas was a catalyst to get him back in. And I love that Paul let him back in. You see the body working the way the body's supposed to work there. Different giftings, different times, different stuff. It's awesome. Let me give you three points and then we'll be done. Number one, notice this. Even though they had a disagreement, it didn't end the work. They kept doing what God had them to do. Sometimes we get like to a, a disagreement with something or have a problem. And then it's like the ministry just grinds to a halt. They don't do that. They keep doing what God has them to do, partnering with Jesus. Number two, this whole chapter is mixing religious behavior for Christian character. Religious behavior is not Christian character. Do you know that? We tend to judge people on religious behavior, but that is not Christian character. Jesus says this in Matthew 23. He says this, you guys strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What's he talking about there? He's talking about how they tithe, how they read their scriptures, how they pray. You guys are stirring at gnats, but then he says, you're neglecting the weightier issues of mercy and justice. So yeah, you're really good at the gnat stuff, but you're not kind, you're hateful, you're gossiping, you're slandering, you're lying. You, you have the, the real important things, man, you're eating a camel. We gotta be careful of that. I think sometimes we can get so involved in, in behavior that we're unloving and unkind and we're unchristian. Don't neglect the weightier things. The, the prayer of my heart is always, I don't want to behave like a Christian. I want to be a Christian so that what I naturally do is Christ-like. And this is my saying on that. When you squeeze an orange, what do you get? All right, when you squeeze a Christian, what should you get? Jesus. You should get Christ. And that's how you know, okay, when you're squeezed, when life puts the screws to you and uh, what comes out of me? That's what I really am. And I can behave right when I'm not putting the, the screws aren't put to me. But when the screws are put to me, that's who I really am. And then lastly, legalism will make you feel better, but it'll never set you free. So you can have rules and do things, and, but it's, it's not gonna set you free to be who God wants you to be. 
Legalism, here's, what, here's how I think about legalism. It's like comfort food. Ice cream, cheese, potato chips. Do they have calories in them? Sure. How do you feel the next day though? Right, you eat a pint of ice cream, you get to the bottom of it, you're like, man, that didn't solve my problems. But man, that felt good. But the next day, what happens? Ugh, you're sunk. That's legalism. Legalism will not set you free. The superfood that when you look at Galatians, which is linked to this section right here, Galatians 3, the superfood for you and me is God's spirit and faith. That's all Galatians 3. That we should be saying in the morning, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Empower me to be a believer. I might get squeezed today and I want you to come out, not me. And help me to be one that trusts you, that your work in me is being accomplished through all these things, through the hard time and the happy time, through the joyful moment and through the tears, that the mountain and the valley, both of those things combined are creating in me the character that will enable me to rule and reign with you forever. Help me to live on the superfoods of your spirit and of faith. And that's strong Christianity. And so Father, today, we thank you how this council walked out so well, a disagreement that could have divided and shattered the unity that you desire. It's brilliant. I pray that we would disagree in agreeable ways, in kind, loving ways. I pray, Lord, that we would take the word of James to heart, to have lifestyles that are holy and loving, staying away from dark stuff, sexual immorality that destroys our souls. And that, Lord, we would curb our own freedoms when they stumble brothers that we love, that we'd be willing to do those things. I pray, Lord, that we would go from here feeding our souls on the superfoods of your spirit and faith and that we'd shine like lights in our homes and neighbors and workplaces. And we ask this in your son's name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.